I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we, much like trees. Oh my God. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, Um, go for it. Dig your way out. We take in the light, which is books, and we turn it into energy, which is vibes. And we give it to you people to be happy and breathe good. Perfect. Ashley, do we have any huge announcements for the people who are breathing good because of us? Yes, we fucking do. Come share some goddamn air with us, baby. We are coming to cities, to places. We're going to be there. Also, one city we won't go to, but you'll see us. The internet. (laughs) If your city has internet, you can have access to us. We're doing another Moment House live digital experience. A back to school special. It'll have nothing to do with school, but it's in the time zone of school. And so we'll be doing a Moment House show September 13th at 6 p.m. Pacific time, 9 p.m. Eastern time, right here from this studio, live to your homes. And we're going to be live in real life in Philadelphia, September 22nd, and in Washington, D.C. on September 23rd. So if you live in either of those cities, we sure do fucking hope to see you. So please come. We're so excited to see you. If you guys haven't been, it's really fun ask around (laughs) ask around ask the other worms who've been to shows in LA New York Chicago we have times and if you live in another city we're doing our darndest to get to you as fast as possible so we will see you all soon hopefully and of course you can always tune into the moment house from anywhere in the world with internet yeah and Claire now let's tune into your week Mm -hmm. if it was a memoir what would this chapter be titled I would call it Oh, that's my bad. <laughs> okay. And that would be because last week I was pretty grumpy because I was mad. Me and Mac are going on a trip for my birthday because I'm turning 30 in October. And I was very grumpy that I thought he hadn't bought the tickets yet. But I didn't want to tell him I was grumpy that he hadn't bought the tickets yet because that would be like the reminder. And that's not the fun of it. The fun is not reminding. So I just had to sit on my grumpiness. And if you actually are a Patreon listener... That's why I was so grumpy. And if you're in a podcast listener, you know, I really can't stop talking ever. So it did get out that I was grumpy about it. And (laughs) would you believe what his response was when I was like, well, it turns out he had, in fact, bought the tickets like two weeks ago. (laughs) I just didn't know. And his explanation, he's like, well, when I told you, oh, yeah, I'm buying those today. That was me buying them that day. And I was like, I guess I assumed there'd be like a follow up email and a GCAL invite. (laughs) So I will say, I guess I didn't have to be so grumpy because there was nothing to be grumpy about. And that was on me. Oops. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you have gotten really into GCAL invites. (laughs) So that's on him for not knowing the way you like things scheduled these days. Who's his assistant these days and why isn't she sending me the invites? Did you ever get replaced? Yeah. They have multiple assistants now. It takes many, many women to do a one Claire job. I will say when I left, they replaced me with three people. And I was like, wait, was I not horrible at my job? Was this just unrealistic? (laughs) I would say no. I fully was working 30 minutes a day. I was like, I didn't know how to be like, oh, it's, it's me. One person could easily do this work. <laughs> but whatever. The more benefits, the merrier. You know what I mean? Now a lot of people have insurance and that's because I was so lazy. I actually gave back to the economy. Thank you. You're welcome, America. Ashley. Yes, Claire. What would your title of your memoir be this week? I would say you're never fully dressed without chilling the fuck out. Yes, True. I've had one of my famous massive bouts of anxiety over something quite small. No. (laughs) It's hard to believe. Hard to believe. Here's the thing. I bought a dress to go to my friend's wedding next weekend. 
And I decided I think I don't like it. And because I wore a pretty cool dress to my other friend's wedding a couple weeks ago, I was like, listen, as the token single bitch who's just out here living a life that I'm trying to prove is really fun and cool, it is really important that I look awesome. And I was like, this dress just doesn't give awesome. And if I don't look awesome, why go? Why go? And so I bought like four dresses online that I'm waiting for to see if I hopefully look cool. And if I don't, I have to live in like God. But if I do, I'll have not learned my lesson. But anyway, a big part of my week was like losing sleep, being like shipping delays. (laughs) If I don't look cool, no one will respect my career choices. I said, if only your cool life had brought you to a city where you could buy things in person. But unfortunately, as we all know, there are no stores in New York and certainly not one cool dress. Okay, can I say, because my cool life keeps me so busy going into the city to stop at multiple stores to find something cool enough is hard. I would not say your cool life keeps you so busy because we have very similar lives. I would say your dog keeps you so busy. I think the only thing that would prevent you from doing that is Bug. Bug I know it's not this podcast because I know what our schedules are. Funny enough about Bug and our memoirist this week is I would say you're doing as good a job raising Bug as our memoirist is doing raising her son. That's not nice. (laughs) That was meant to be an insult. (laughs) This week's memoirist, you may know her from Cruel Intentions. You may know her from Legally Blonde. Hell, you may even know her from Hellboy. Selma Blair is a mean baby. Selma Blair grew up outside of Detroit, Michigan, and was born June 23rd, 1972. She was the youngest of four daughters. She was actually born baby girl Bettner. They did not give her a name for several years. That's a big part of her story. I don't know if you know this. We all tell ourselves stories. And she wants to tell us hers. So the prologue starts with, in the fall of 2002... I saw a tarot reader in Los Angeles. So she is big into future predictions. She loves to have her future told to her by a person in a shop with a window that has neon. Yeah, anybody. (laughs) She'll listen to anyone say anything, honestly. Tarot readers, palm readers, fortune tellers, horoscope experts. She talks about how when she was seven years old, she went to her friend's birthday party and her friend's mom dressed up as a fortune teller and told her that in the future, she would be a beautiful actress with a lot of men in a line for her attention. And when she told her mom, her mom said, that's ridiculous. Why would she tell you that? Besides, if you do grow up to be beautiful, emphasis on the if, and tall, emphasis on the and, you'll be a model. Or he'll marry an oil man and spend your days on his yacht. That settled it. My mother's word was gospel. End of discussion. I looked out the window. I think that's very interesting to be like you, an actor, Maybe a model, but never an actress. You could be a model or a wife. (laughs) She ends the prologue with, I don't need a psychic to make connections between my past and my present. I know how the story unfolds. I've seen how the pieces fit together and I want to be the one to tell it. Me and Ashley can tell you from our experience of this book, I actually see why she's looking to other people to help her put the pieces together. I don't know that she's really drawn any conclusions I believe in yet. Okay, so this book is a bit of a stressful read for me because I don't like books that are written in a very romantic, wistful tone where then the contents are deeply chaotic. Yeah. It is stressful to read someone being like, and there I was on that fateful day watching it all burn down. And you're like, <laughs> what? what? And then she just moves on. And that's the thing is, and then you never get like a, a reflection upon it. You never get anything fitting with the tone, like a dramatic conclusion. She just says everything that is sometimes horrible, sometimes frightening, sometimes nothing, all in the exact same writerly way. I struggled through this book because I didn't know how to feel about it. And I had a bad taste in my mouth, but one that I didn't think I would die on a hill over. Do you know what I mean? I was very much ready to come to this podcast and say, I don't think I liked this book, 
But if you liked it, I don't think that you're wrong. And I texted you with that exact same message. And then the more we looked into it, the more I felt steadfast and being like, something is wrong here. And I would compare it to if you've ever eaten a dish and been like, is my palate just not fancy enough for this pasta dish or is something going on? And you're like, oh, the cheese was rancid. Okay, yeah, this was a toxic pasta. (laughs) That being said, I'm excited to talk about this book. I do think it's not a straightforward book. I think we, me and Ashley had similar conclusions, but I don't know if that's the only conclusion anyone would draw. And I do think a lot of people really liked this book and I don't think they're wrong for that, but I do think that there are pieces that should be examined further. I would question it because... uh, on our reflections, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is something weird in this book. Okay. So she is born with a scowl on her face. From the moment she was born, the neighborhood kids all came to see the new baby, which was odd to me. But then they all left the house screaming, the Bettners have a mean baby. And apparently she looked grumpy as a baby. And she said, from the very beginning, I was misunderstood. And then next, I think is a very important quote because I do believe that it sets up her premise about this book, which is the central conceit that I think I disagree with, which is why so much of it falls flat for me. Nevertheless, the label stuck as labels are wont to do. What people call you does matter. The words we use hold weight. We say this sometimes as lip service, but it's true. It's like having a sticker affixed to your back, but that the rest of the world can read, but you can't. Before I could even speak, I was told who and what I was. I was mean. And I agree with this premise to an extent. I don't know that she examines it further. I think that there could be a second step that could be made. That would be like how you would end this book. And we'll get into it later, but... That's kind of where she ends the basic premise of this book. There's no more premising. So the premise is that what people call you stick. So she was labeled a mean baby. Therefore, as a kid, she was a mean kid. And this, I just, it feels like a cop out to be like, they called me mean. So here's what I did that was mean. What she does is mean. I was reading this book and I was like, oh, you were a bad kid. One of her big stories is that her grandfather's funeral in the line where everyone lines up to give you their condolences. She was standing next to her father, a man who had just buried his father and every person who came up to give condolences she would punch in the nuts <laughs> this was like a game of hers punching people in the nuts at her grandpa's funeral she was a big biter as a child she said she bit her sister so hard she broke skin and chomped off flesh one of her big games that she liked to play is she figured out she could get a lot of attention if she said she lost an earring and so she went to this boy's birthday party and just announced that her earring was gone. And if she goes home without it, her mom will kill her. And the entire party ground to a halt so that everybody could try to help her find this earring that she never had to begin with. And the mom was on the ground. And she says, when the mom goes up to her mother and says, hey, I'm so sorry. She lost an earring. We could not find it. The mother goes, she's just lying. She's a liar. Looking back, I think I was jealous of how much that mom loved her son. She put so much effort into throwing her beautiful boy a suitably beautiful party. I wanted the warm glow of that kind of attention to be lavished on me. I longed to understand how that felt. I thought there needed to be an emergency to get attention. And in the absence of a real emergency, I manufactured one. That was just one of my mean babyisms, a penchant for ruining everyone's time and then one page later she says I was a mean baby as if I'd ever had a choice I do feel like it is complicated when you're a kid to bust through the labels that people thrust upon you Mm -hmm. I was labeled a shy kid and so I felt like I had a really hard time expressing myself because if I did people would really like be like oh Ashley's talking there's a big thing going on right now it's hard to break out of these things you have similar well look I was labeled a bitch early on life and look what I've had to do professionally become a literal professional bitch. I don't want to, but I had to. (laughs) 
I do think it is hard and I get that, but I also think there are a number of labels applied to her and then the ones that she goes hard and fast for are the ones that she agrees with. I guess I do think to say people labeled me mean, so at a funeral I just punched everybody. That feels extreme to me. That doesn't feel like something that someone made you do because they called you mean when you were a baby. So then she gets into her family's history, where her family comes from, her mom. Her mom is... I don't want to say abusive because she doesn't call her abusive. And I don't think it's right to put that label on someone who doesn't want it for their life story. But she had a very challenging mother who did a lot of bad things. And the way she starts painting the picture is with this very strict and regimented woman. It starts with this line. My three sisters and I were all born at 845 on a Friday morning, purposefully scheduled so that my mother would have the weekend to recover as she tells it and get back to work on Monday. Are they wisdom teeth? (laughs) She's just getting kids removed on Friday so that she can get back to work on Monday. What the fuck? That cannot possibly be true. No, they were scheduled C-sections. You don't bounce back in two days from a C-section. Right. But the fact that that's a story that her mom wants to be true is equally telling to me. So her mom's parents had good money. Her maternal grandfather owned a bunch of grocery stores in the Midwest and the East Coast. Her mom actually married a man young. Her father put him through medical school. The minute they had a baby, he just abandoned the family and started a new family and said, don't come back for your stuff. Like, don't ever look for me. So now she was a single mother of a little baby. She hadn't graduated college, but somehow she tricked her way into law school, graduated law school and became a full-blown working lawyer. Judge later. This would have been in the 60s. She gets married to another man. He's Jewish. They convert to Judaism. And then she has three more daughters with this man. His name is Elliot. We almost never hear about him. So Elliot and her mother don't divorce until Selma is 23. And the way he is not present throughout her life. I mean, he comes and goes. He's a part of a couple of stories. But she, it seems like, never had a strong relationship with her father And then when it became her mom versus her dad, she a thousand percent chose her mom. So her mother was obsessed with being beautiful and the importance of beauty. She said, if we ever pass a child who is dolled up by their mother, my own mother would take note and say, that child is love. It was my mother's greatest disappointment whenever I wasn't turned out well. Selma, please make yourself beautiful. She would say, it means so much. So her mom was very strict, very withholding and very intense. Nobody was allowed in her bedroom ever. Every day, her mom would come out full face of makeup, fully dolled up. And you were not allowed to see her without her makeup. One time Selma went in as a little girl and hid under the bed. She surprised her. And when she was in there, she found out that her mom was completely bald and wore a wig and had lost all of her hair in high school from some unknown viral illness. And it was never discussed, never acknowledged. And beyond that moment, she never saw her mom without her wig and her makeup on. Can I say, I wonder what illness this was because this is not the first person of this age group, the first memoir mom to randomly be bald. That's so true. Denise Richards' mother randomly lost all of her hair one day, right? And nobody knew why. And so then we get the stories of how her mother raised them. Again, we get almost no stories of how her father raised them. He doesn't seem to be very present at all. But her mom would say things like, how can you be so beautiful from one angle and so ugly full face? My mother said I look like Lauren Bacall, but only with my head turned three quarters, never head on. Don't look at people head on, Selma, or they'll know you're a frying pan. Put on some makeup, Selma. Your eyes look like piss holes in the snow. So her mom was incredibly vicious with her, but she was absolutely obsessed. Her mom was everything to her. She wanted to emulate her mom. She wanted her mom's approval. She goes back and I think she wasn't able to see her mother a lot. And she does say, you know, it was a time when there was no work-life balance. It was so rare to be a working mother that there was no idea of how to be a working mother and a nurturing mother. So basically she was just gone all day at work. She left the house for work every day at like 5 a.m. 
Yeah, so she mentions that her mom, like we said, was a full-time career woman and worked two hours away. So she would drive two hours, work a full-time job, drive two hours home and still give them all dinner. But I guess she was gone from like 12 hours a day, it seems. And then she gets into the labels that her mother gave all of them. Here is Marie, the student, she said of Mimi. Catherine, the overachiever. This drove Katie wild and still does. I can't believe mom would call me that, she'd lament. It's really fucking awful. It means you're not capable, but that you've still done shit. Everyone wants to be an underachiever, which is a good, talented person who just hasn't tapped into it yet. That's really funny to me. It's funny, but I also think it's not necessarily true. I don't know that if you pulled everyone in the world, they'd be like, oh, the worst thing to be is an overachiever. I think most people would say an overachiever is the good one and an underachiever is the bad one, the one who's underachieved. I do think this book doesn't take into account people's interpretations of things. There's this assumption that they're all getting labeled and they live under the thumb of that label, but there's no sense of like how you label one person wouldn't affect the second person identically. Yeah, and there's no acknowledgement of like how you label one person affects them internally one way and externally the same way. Because if Mm -hmm. I say, here's Claire the overachiever, maybe internally you're like, I hate that. But externally, I'm not embarrassing you. That's a nice thing to say for the most part. I've never once thought that calling someone an overachiever meant that they weren't capable. (laughs) I've always thought the opposite. This is Lizzie, the popular athlete, which she sometimes alternated with Lizzie, the tomboy. And last but not least, Selma, the manic depressive. I always found this funny because there was nothing manic about me. I have only ever been depressive, but I didn't dare protest. I considered it my fortune to play the part assigned to me. Oh, it's true, my mom would say, in case anyone harbored any doubt. And here, I guess, I think this is, to me, the first example of a time that she's hearing a label thrown at her and not internalizing it or saying, like, no, that's not true. This idea that you are whatever anyone calls you all the time. It immediately falls apart before we're at page 50. And this is someone who's so important to her, like her mom. She talks about how her mom and dad, she like never really saw them as a loving couple. Elliot worshipped his dazzling, ambitious wife and she merely tolerated him. They talk a lot about how the mom, because she was left with a child, it seemed pretty obvious that she just married whoever would take her. Yeah, she said, I was damaged goods. I had to take what I could get. As much as I missed her because she worked long hours, I was impressed with her. It was my mother whom I revered emulated more than anyone. I was mesmerized by her, by her smile, her makeup, her clothes, the small grape-sized birthmark on her right calf, her throaty laugh, the way she smoked, the way she sat behind the wheel of the car. She was my first great love. I wanted every cell of her body to repopulate itself into mine. I wanted to become her. The feeling never faltered. Decades later, when she was suffering from neurological distress, my mother was the person whose approval meant the most to me. So obviously she was obsessed with her mom, but then she gets into kind of how difficult and almost cruel her mom could be. She talks about going shopping with her mom and how it was the greatest experience and because she didn't want to ruin it. And honestly, Jeanette McCurdy-ish way, the way that she felt like it was her responsibility to control whether or not her mom was nice or mean that day. So she was afraid to go to the bathroom because she's like, if our mom took a shopping, if we couldn't find a bathroom and someone said, I have to pee, then her mom would be like, whatever, let's just all go home. So she was like, if I want to keep this day fun and memorable, I cannot have to pee. And she would get UTIs. Growing up, I knew better than to complain about the sparks in my arms and hands that came and went, the repeating nightmares and dark thoughts that I recorded in my diary, the moments of existential anguish I felt even as a little girl. Nor did I disclose my deep desire to feel needed by her, held by her, because I was born terrified. I needed to keep very still so she wouldn't see the fear and disappear. I'm going to call back to the, in the book jacket is photos of her growing up and then letters she wrote to her mom. And so is it okay if I read one of the letters? Yeah. Dear mom, I love you. I want to be alone with you for my birthday. I'm sorry that I embarrassed you. I didn't know it would. Please don't be mad at me. I can't wait till Lizzie and Katie go away to camp. Then I can be all alone with you and it will be so fun. Kiss me the first time you see me. I need it. You haven't kissed me for a long time. I hope you had fun with your friends. I'm the one that put the bat on the porch. I'm sorry. 
Bye bye, mom. Love, baby bear. P.S. I hope we can go out to lunch next week. And sorry, I upset you. P.S.S. My heart's breaking because you haven't hugged me. Please hug me soon or I will crumble up and blow away. So, I mean, that's like a pretty intense (laughs) letter. Yeah. I mean, later she writes, she hurt her leg one time. It really, really hurt. She said she was limping across the room and her mom laughed and called her dramatic. And she said, I learned that I couldn't show pain and that I certainly couldn't talk about it. To do so would only provoke laughter. Her and her mom also had like a simpatico feeling that she felt like her mom understood how depressed she was. She said the mom always related to her the most, said that they were both realists. Once when I was in middle school, she told me things ever got really bad. We could always go into the garage together. We could turn on the Corvette, seal the doors and breathe until we didn't. We'd be together, she said, so you tell me. I thought she was trying to be kind. It was her wildly inappropriate way of recognizing my pain, even if it's horrifying to contemplate that a mother would suggest this to her daughter. My sisters were shocked. I see it now. She knew I was a depressive, but if I told her, yes, let's do it, she could stop me. So that, I think, paints the picture of her mother. And then I want to get into this next story she tells, which is, for me, another example of Selma, and I don't want to say not understanding her own life, but I think missing some of the bigger points. Yeah, really seeing a story, knowing it affected her. And I don't know, we're not psychologists. But it seems like what was central to her childhood was her mom being pretty emotionally abusive to her. And yet she isn't ready to delve into that. At the end of the book, her mom dies just one or two years before she writes this book. And I think she just isn't able to process it. But I mean, I'll just tell the story to give the example. So she tells the story about the spaghetti incident. Spaghetti was her favorite food growing up when she was six years old. They're eating spaghetti. She puts the Parmesan on top and her sister looks at her and goes, oh my God, Selma's eating the pasta without mixing in the cheese into her sauce. Selma is so humiliated that she runs away from the table, hides under her bed. The sister has to come and get her, cooks her out. They go back to dinner and she goes, I never ate in front of people again. And I did not have spaghetti again until after college. She said for years to come, I would believe I should not eat what was put before me. She felt tricked. She felt humiliated. It was a very complicated night of spaghetti. The very next page she gets into how in her family, the worst thing a person could be was fat. She says, my mother valued thinness, so I wanted to be thin. Like Pop Pop, she prized beauty above all. She warned me that once I got my period, I would stop growing. So she said I should try to postpone menstruation for as long as possible. Her mom wanted her to be five foot eight so that she could eventually become a model. And if she got her period before she was five eight, she would never be five eight. When I saw the first drops of, of brown blood at age 11, I hid the evidence from my mother. I prayed I'd continue to grow taller, longer, leaner. I did not. When I was in seventh grade, I told my mother I had just started my period. I acted surprised as if it had only just begun. She asked how much I weighed. 90 pounds, I said. She told me not to get a pound heavier. Not a single pound. This is your weight, she said. This is your size. I have been wary of that weight ever since. My mother was dictatorial about weight, perhaps, but only because she had watched her own mother grow heavy. And then she explains a story about how her grandfather hated her grandmother because her grandmother had put on weight as an adult. And for that reason, they stopped speaking to the grandmother. They found in her mom's room notebooks that she says looked like an EKG printout. There was just rows and rows of numbers. And they realized for a period of time, their mom had been weighing herself hourly. So to the end of this book, she maintains that she's never had an eating disorder. She will at the end of this book say, I do clinically have anorexia, but I've never had an eating disorder. She also went to rehab for an eating disorder. She went to rehab for alcoholism and they said, no, 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 no. You have an eating disorder. And she goes, no, I don't. And so I guess that's where I have a hard time with this book is there felt like there was an emotional dishonesty or just like she wasn't ready to delve into what was actually happening. And I think this spaghetti story for her to be like, one time my eight-year-old sister teased me when I was six about spaghetti and I never ate it again. Anyway, my mom said that if you ever gained a pound, you wouldn't be valuable and worthy as a wife. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe it wasn't the one thing your sister said. Maybe there was a deeper rooted issue here. And even though she will admit it and she'll tell these stories and clearly she knows these stories are fucked up. 
They don't feel acknowledged. They don't feel acknowledged emotionally. She never like delves into how that affected her as an adult. She never puts the pieces together, which is why it's so ironic that at the beginning of the book, she'd be like, I don't need anybody to explain my life to me. I see it all now. <laughs> I mean, her mom gives her one of her old rag dolls. So her mom had two dolls from her childhood that she cherished and she gives one of them to Selma and Selma takes it as this incredible gift from her mom that her mom's trusting her with her childhood doll. The doll's name is Skinny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so clear. And she says explicitly that the value of thinness in their house was paramount, but she refuses to admit that she has an eating disorder, which is fine. I guess that's your right to take on or not. But to say I wasn't eating pasta because of something an eight-year-old said and not the values set upon me by my mother who told me I should try to postpone puberty and never gain another pound over 90 feels to me dishonest and like you're ignoring something on purpose. So then I just want to tell this one other story because I think I will refer to it later, but she she's close to one of her sisters, Lizzie. She doesn't seem very close to the other two at all. But something that strikes me in this book is how alone she seems. Like even though she was one of four children and even though she says her older sister, Lizzie, was so great, she seems very isolated in her childhood and her experience. And part of that is I think she was her mother's favorite because she was considered the most beautiful and the only one that could be a model or an actress or anybody beautiful growing up. But she very much has... I'm so much deeper than everyone else disease. And so she tells a story about how when they were little, they went to go see an American werewolf in London, which I guess is like a funny horror movie. But because she was sick, she was horrified and it scarred her for life. Only as an adult does she call her sister and say, oh, do you even remember that movie? And her sister goes, that movie really fucked me up, Blair. It changed my life. Gobsmacked. I had no idea she ever felt that way. I can still see her sitting in that passenger bucket seat saying how much she liked it. I remember getting out of mom's Corvette that night thinking, I don't know how I'm ever going to be okay. It was a revelation to me. Lizzie was the tough one, acting nonchalant about big, scary things. My big sister, always so brave, she pretended to enjoy it. I didn't know the truth. And something for me about Selma Blair is even though this whole book presumably is about like bucking the labels and seeing people as whole, complex, dynamic individuals that get to determine their own life, she seems really unable to understand that anyone else has interiority. And that's one of my big memoirist pet peeves is being like, you don't understand. I'm different underneath. For me, it was hard. For me, I'm more than meets the eye. But for you, I saw what I saw. And what are you telling me? It's different. Okay. So for her to be an adult before she knew that her sister might not just be the brave person she portrayed herself to be, like, I think you should have learned that earlier. But then beyond this one moment, this lesson of her sister being scared of that movie too, doesn't seem to seep into any other part of her life, which I have a hard time with. Yeah, like you just said, there seems to be a real never talked to anyone else disease throughout this book. So this next chapter that we're going to get to, it's really the only part that focuses on her dad fully. She just kind of paints a picture of her dad as someone who was there, who took them on vacations. And she writes about the beautiful vacations and says, to this day, a good hotel is still what I think of as the highest luxury. A luxury hotel is luxury to you? No. Like, I wonder (laughs) if you've ever talked to anyone else and said, what what do you find fancy? <laughs> Is it a fancy hotel? <laughs> Is it something with fancy in the title? <laughs> because to me, it's fancy pajamas, which do have fancy in the title. So then she gets into her history of drinking. And she says, the year I was seven, when we basically had Manischewitz on tap and no one at the table was paying attention to my consumption level, I put it together. In that moment, in the dining room with the plagues and the frogs and the hail and the locusts. It was Passover, sorry. I feel like that's an important reference to <laughs> yeah, why there, there were are just plagues. frogs and plagues. <laughs> there came an epiphany. I realized as I kept refilling my glass, the feeling was not God, but fermentation. So she gets like fucked up that night and gets she super gets sick. blackout drunk and screams at her cousin and is falling on the ground 
And after that experience, which for most kids would be like, I am not touching that sauce ever again. She becomes infatuated with alcohol. So she starts drinking recreationally, but a lot up and through her teens. I mean, she is in middle school stealing a nip from her parents' liquor cabinet before school. Yeah, at one point, when she, she's like in fourth grade, going down, it's taking nips until she can't stand up anymore and she's sick and throwing up, which is yeah. a lot. And she yeah. says she found a book called Sarah T, Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic, and goes, I'm going to do this. I made a promise to myself. I would be the best alcoholic a girl could possibly be. Her dad finds her hammered one time and is like, what the hell is happening? Stop. In eighth grade, she says, my school friends and I were in different places. I was reading the bell jar and trying to cultivate a profound depth. Meanwhile, they only cared about amazing bar and bat mitzvah parties and sweaters from the limited. She says that she drank in front of her best friend at one point, who was really her only friend in the school. Then her friend just started distancing herself from Selma. And years later, they caught up at the Chateau Marmont. And she goes, was it the drinking? Yes, I think it was, she said. She shifted in her chair, still uncomfortable thinking about it. I also think it has something to do with the way you lived. You freaked me out. I've never seen anyone our age behave that way. I just do think that this idea of Selma Blair as an adult being like, give it to me straight. What was I really like to you as an eight-year-old? Like, I feel like she thinks she's making a man. She's like, this is the first friend I ever lost due to my alcoholism. I'm like, it really wasn't. It was just an eight-year-old who thought you were fucking weird because you were weird. Yeah, I don't think your friend had a concept of alcoholism or the fact that you were even drinking alcohol. I think if you had not posed the question in that exact way, the answer would not have been it was the alcohol. I think that's the answer she wanted more than anything. But she also tells stories about finding beer out on the playground and drinking it and her friends being like, I don't know, man. And I'm like, I don't even know that it was a beer thing. I think it was a finding a random bottle under a slide and kids probably going, I don't think there could be germs. Yeah, I think it has to do with the fact that she's like, this is what I want to do. And her friend being like, mm. I don't really know what you're doing and that doesn't seem fun, so I don't want to do that. She was really into pressuring other kids into drinking. She talks about this one time. Her and her sister got some 10-year-old blackout drunk and the 10-year-old destroyed everything in their house and they got in a lot of trouble. And she was like, it really was my fault. What did I think was going to happen when you get a 10-year-old drunk? And you're like, one, I mean, I guess it's not your fault because you're also 10. But two, the fact that your sister was in on this at 12 makes me think it was a bigger family problem, but she never acknowledges that this was a bigger family problem. It's very much her problem as an individual. And as we'll see later, she fully credits to her MS. Everything in this book, by the end of the book, is going to get blamed on her MS. And I just like don't know that being an alcoholic at seven is the MS necessarily. or Because right. she'll be like, it was always to heal the pain that I was feeling. And I, though I believe she was in pain, obviously, I think it was probably more to do with the fact that your mom said you're not allowed to be in pain. But there's no connection there. Or if your sister who doesn't have MS was also drinking like that, there were larger problems at play, but she never acknowledges it. Because this is not teenage drinking. This isn't getting drunk with your friends on the weekends. Like she has been a solo drinker daily. That's so... Since she was a kid. Weird. Anyway, then she gets a boyfriend... And then he dies. So she starts dating this guy in middle school and they date on and off through the end of high school and senior year of high school, he dies and she's just like, I think about him. Anyway. Yeah, she says, my mother said, you will never really get over this. She was right. I never did. No one ever spoke of the cause of his death to this day. It's still a great mystery to me. And then we never hear about it again. And I understand that like, of course, somebody who died 30 years ago, maybe there's not room for it on every page of your memoir. But again, there's very little acknowledgement of what that kind of trauma might be like. Yeah, and I also do think to just kind of list off these traumas kind of does them no service. Like I said, everything's written with the same tone. Like her 
having an argument about a doll and her ex-boyfriend dying have the same intensity in this book. Sometimes when we have people just like mention the tragedies of people adjacent to them, I think if you're not going to do it a service, don't mention it. And that might be a controversial take, but I feel like Bradley's death probably really impacted certain people. And if for Selma, it's like essentially a throwaway line, you don't have to write it in then. Though it didn't align with my mother's original ambitions for me, I found I loved to write. Her whole life, she really loved writing. She would start writing all these stories. She wrote a memoir when she was six called I, Selma. I shared, I shared it with my mother, who was so impressed. And then she was walking around a bookstore and she saw that Tina Turner had written a memoir called I, Tina. And she was like, oh my God, I'm on the same writing level as Tina Turner. <laughs> Praise did not come easily from my mother, and yet she loved my writing notes. Later, she talks about a poem she wrote in middle school, and her mom is like, this is not good. I can't believe they give you an award for this. But they did give her an award for She got a couple of creative writing awards in high school. And her mom would, when she was being funny, her mom would go, oh, that's so funny. That's so clever. At one point, her mom called her up and says, you must write a book, my mother would say. I have nothing to write about, mom. Then write a song. Be a songwriter. But all the good melodies are taken, I said. Put it in the box, she roared, which is what she would say whenever Selma had a good one. After her mother died, they found in her desk, she had an entire drawer of everything Selma had written to her, every article about Selma. It was like a big Selma desk from the time she was born. And she said, there were no photos of me. She kept all my stories, all my drawings, all my little pieces of paper, put it in the box. That is what she saved. I was the only child she did it for. Again, no real acknowledgement of what that must have been like for the other children. Yeah, because if she was this mean to you, her favorite, what was Lizzie going through? And then she goes to this school called Cranbrook Kingswood. And here, my friends, we have maybe the only instance ever of somebody being obsessed with high school. Somebody okay. who didn't peak in high school. She loves Cranbrook. <laughs> it is to this day a place where she's like, as soon as it is okay to fly again. I'm going back to Cranbrook. Literally, it's like our first stop out of chemo. She goes, classes were held in rooms that looked more like living rooms, beautiful open spaces to wander, besting even the lobby of the Chateau Marmont, which has a similar lighting scheme. Can I say that if you're comparing your high school to the Chateau Marmont, that makes me think you've only been to two places and that's your high school and the Chateau Marmont. If you're like, um, these two places are very similar. Have you looked at the lighting schemes? I think you're really digging. I've never been to the Chateau Marmont, but I imagine it looks quite a bit like this office, <laughs> a place I've been. <laughs> when I go to the Chateau Marmont, I can't wait to say, ah, they have a couch just like home. <laughs> <laughs> Lighting, hmm. Where I come from, we also have lights. Anyway, she went to a Jewish day school, which we didn't mention. The academics at her Jewish day school were not rigorous. So at Cranbrook, she falls way behind. She spends the summer before high school getting tutoring to catch her up. She gets there. She cannot keep up. They kick her out. She goes to public school for like two minutes. Has a seizure, goes to the hospital. When she comes out of the hospital, they're like, guess what? We'll take her back. Even her mom is like, wait, why? And her dad's like, shut up. <laughs> so <laughs> Let her go. Goes back to Cranbrook. And thank goodness, because she falls in love with its preppiness hallways she like loves that everyone there is a wasp and everything is beautiful and everybody has money i mean later she falls in love with jason schwartzman because she loved him in rushmore god she's obsessed with old money prep school nonsense yeah she loves an old money and she well, loves can i prep. say so we kind of skipped over this part because it didn't actually feel that important but she talks about the way that her mom lusted for waspiness her mom's mom was a wasp and her mom's dad was Jewish. Her mom converted to Judaism for her dad and the children were all raised Jewish. But she, she has this weird sentence where she's like, 
my mom just beneath the surface there was always a lot of resentment for Jewish people but I think it's just because she felt she didn't belong and she really wanted to be accepted by them I'm like I don't think that that's what it was because she also mentions this jewelry box where she kept tokens of waspiness yeah and also in their house they like revered Grace Kelly and they revered Brooke like they were obsessed and then look at how she's obsessed with the prep schools she has this friend Sue that we'll get into she's like you don't even understand she was so blonde <laughs> Sue had blonde hair and that was something extraordinary about I her. couldn't believe I could have a blonde friend I'd never seen anything like it again another unexplored thing that feels very obvious and close to the surface that she does not choose to explore so she meets Sue since we're here already I called her Susie Sunshine she was perpetually upbeat my polar opposite my best counterpart she was so good she has this way of labeling people and putting people in these boxes. There's never an understanding that maybe Sue has struggles of her own. There was no sense that maybe Sue also had depth. It's just, I'm Selma, I'm weird, I'm dark, nobody gets me, and you're Sue, and you're bright, and you keep me grounded because you're so good. People either loved me or were repulsed by me, but they didn't see me, not for who I really was or who I wanted to be. So then in high school, she also gets a boyfriend. He is the hottest boy in school. And she puts in a photo of him and he is like the hottest boy in almost any school, I think. he's He looks like Chris he's Pine or gorgeous. something. Yeah. And then she gets into the dean. Even before I started at Cranbrook, I was acquainted with the dean. Everyone at Cranbrook knew him. He had tutored my sister Lizzie in math before she enrolled and offered the same to help me the summer before school. She loves him. She says he was handsome. He was respected. Her and Sue would always talk about how someday they hope to marry someone just like the dean. And because she was behind in academics, she had daily meetings with him where he would tutor her. And in those meetings, eventually they became quite close. She started feeling very weird about how it started seeming kind of romantic. A few months into school, the dean's embraces started to linger. He remarked I was pretty, maybe inappropriate, but of course he was also married to a woman I respected and found lovely. And then we find out the dean is a pedophile. One day, right before winter break of my freshman year, December 1986, I was in his office. He locked the door. We exchanged gifts. He asked me what my scent was. It was an Hermes fragrance. I was already a little disarmed when he asked me to stand. We embraced. It felt too long and too still and too quiet. I was a child. I wasn't equipped for this. His hand went to the small of my back, tracing the spine just above my tailbone. His lips were on my mouth. They were closed, but they were there. I tried everything I had to put my faith in this. Please, I thought, please don't go under my pants. My dress code approved Ralph Lauren khakis. You're a grown-up and I love you. Please do not put your hand into my pants, but he did. I didn't know how to say those two simple words. Please stop. Please stop. Are there two more important words in this world? Please stop. Are there two words that are harder to say when you're a woman in a position like this? Every time I tried to get out of the room, I tried not to engage, but I never asked him to stop. I didn't want to consider what the consequences might be if I refused him. Saying no to him meant losing Cranbrook and I didn't want to lose Cranbrook. I will say one of the more heartbreaking things I've read is the inclusion of please. That's the pattern in this book is there's a lot more assault in this book. And she always is like, if only I had been able to say, please stop. And I'm like, I don't think you have to say please. It breaks my heart that this is where you're including please. Yeah. Finally, one night, early my senior year, my mother and I were lying in her bed. Apropos of nothing, she closed her book and said, I think the dean is in love with you. Is he? I was overcome. I took a slow, deep breath, exhaled and said, I think he might be. He tried to kiss me. My mother exhaled and said, I knew it. She took a deep breath. You must not tell anybody. He's beloved at that school and you'll just be a troubled girl. Best to get through it and get done. I knew she was right in saying this. I put my head on the pillow. I would evade. I would get out. I had done the right thing in confiding in her and she would not embarrass me and make me react in any public way. My former ally was now an enemy of my ever loyal mother. I'm sorry, she said, her focus far off. Her mother never spoke to the dean again and at the end of the year made it clear that she knew. But it really does once again break my heart another story of a kid opening up to their parent and their parent not doing anything but I understand that it's a very tricky situation but still it seems like 
it seems the idea like, of being like, well, just good luck out there. You're a senior. That guy will just stay a dean, someone who preys on young girls. A few years later, a girl approached me on her college campus and asked, what happened with the dean? My mother is friends with his wife. She said she's furious with you. You ruined their marriage. That broke my heart. I never had the chance to explain the transgression. There was no winning. I was the mean baby, the girl who had ruined this house. I was surprised that another adult, an adult I loved, thought I was culpable. I was surprised she couldn't see the truth, that the dean had ruined me. I mean, that's just two traumas in a row. So she talks about being close with this family. So the fact that the dean did this to her and then the fact that his wife thought she was responsible. That's two heartbreaking things. Yeah, and the idea that people in town are talking about this and somehow you have been cast as the villain. That's a horrible thing to have happen to somebody. Yes. And the idea that all these adults now know and nobody seems to be stepping up and doing the right thing. And she says, I learned that this man so beloved was not, at least not entirely, who everyone believed him to be. I learned that when it came to marriage, I did not have much to look forward to. I learned that the people in charge do not always have your best interests at heart. Remarkably, my dealings with the dean did not diminish my total awe and love for the rest of my Cranbrook experience. She loves Cranbrook. But here's the thing, and then she just launches in to the rest of the book. She never reflects back on what that might have done to her. She has one of the few, I think, acknowledgements of the trauma when she says, this affected how I saw marriage, this affected how I saw what I thought a good man was, which I'm sure was honest, but that thread is never continued. And the way that just, she's like, anyway, high school was great besides that. I would say that this is essentially like a bullet list of traumas that then get wrapped up into the only conclusion I can possibly draw is that it must have been MS the whole time. Yeah, it's really bizarre. I don't know. And I don't want to be mean about someone's trauma because obviously these are horrible things. I'm not saying like sit there thinking of it, but to not acknowledge the extent to which that would fuck you up. It's a lot of like first draft word vomiting and there doesn't seem like to be a lot of emotional honesty in it. I think from what I heard about this book and from what I expected from this book, and I'm not saying our expectations are always fair, but I think we thought we were going to get a really in-depth and encompassing experience. And it, yeah. it just is not that. It's much more of a list. I mean, not that the Bella Twins are the height of memoirists, but I always think that they are such a good example of, I wouldn't say, oh, they had the best written memoir. I wouldn't say, oh, they're the deepest, most poignant authors. But they are people who are like, here's what happened to me here's how it affected my life. Here's the work that I did to get through it. And then here's what I can take from my story and help be with. And there seems to be whatever that book was able to pull off. This one lacks for me. I don't think you feel that much with her. Like she's really telling you something, but there's not really anything that brings you in. It just feels like she's not ready to see the lasting impacts of these moments and these traumas and I think it's to protect some of the people she loved. I think she she loves her mother and she doesn't really want to say, what was it like to be raised by a mother who weighed herself hourly and told me to stick to 90 pounds? What was it like? The place she loves most on earth. I mean, as an adult, as a Hollywood adult, she's still going back to Cranbrook reunions. But that to have not been marred by being assaulted by the deep. It's just like kind of hard to believe. And then on the other hand, she's like, anyway, I'm an alcoholic. And anyway, people keep telling me I'm an eating disorder, but that's not really the problem. And you're just like, and by people, she means professionals, professionals. It's just something doesn't add up to me about it. And it was odd to read. So then, and here's where I get to the crux of my main problem with this is, so she gets to the end of her Cranbrook experience. And by the way, when she graduated from Cranbrook, she won the award for best writing in her high school. That was her graduation award. She was the best writer. And she tells the story about how she was always auditioning for the drama programs. She never got into anything. And finally she went up and she did a single monologue and the drama teacher looked up to her and said, Blair, he exclaimed, you're an actress. I was quiet, crushed. 
I wanted him to see me as a writer. But he was unequivocal. His words played in my head. You're an actress. The power of a label yet again. And then she says, I wasn't a writer. I was an actress. I did not yet think that one could be both a writer and an actress or that I had the power to set my own course, not an overachiever or even much of an achiever. But I had been given another prophecy and it was my destiny to fulfill it. Again, this is kind of where I'm like, Blair, four pages ago, you were called the best writer in your class. You were auditioning to be in a play for the theater department and the director says, oh, you're an actress. For her to say you are what people call you, I think she's missing the secondary understanding of you were seeking that label. Yeah, you are what people call you that resonates with some deep sense of self. And I understand that your sense of self is very much shaped from the outside, but there are a lot of labels and she doesn't really seem to acknowledge that maybe she clearly wanted to be an actress. Clearly when she was seven, she wanted to be an actress when that woman said you're gonna be a famous actress. I think the problem with actresses is it takes a toll on them that they're not seen as smart the way a writer is seen as smart. So then it helps their narrative to go back and be like, I always wanted to be a writer, but I was told I wasn't allowed to be. But she could have been a writer. She won the writing degree. And she went to college on a photography scholarship. She studied photography in college. I would say graduating with a photography degree, that's quite the label that you would think might determine your future. That seemed to have not a lick of impact on her sense of self, this right. book or anything. But it explains why she's so obsessed with tarot readers, with astrology, with things like that, because a lot of those are take what resonates, leave what doesn't. Yeah. And she loves to, when someone says something that's what she wants to hear, she will cling to it. When someone says something that's either what she wants to hear or what explains an unknown thing about her. When she's someone who was not nice throughout her childhood, finds out that from day four, people were calling her a mean baby. She's like, well, that's the label. They said it and I had no other choice. When she, someone who claims she wants to be a writer, was told you're an actress. She's like, well, that's what I had to pursue. I had no other choice. No, you wanted to move to New York and spend years auditioning and living in a dorm with a twin bed. So then she goes to college, the College of Kalamazoo, Unfortunately, despite high school being the best experience, she had to go to college. <laughs> so she goes to the College of Kalamazoo where she studies photography and there she gets one boyfriend and then another boyfriend. That boyfriend tries to break up with her. So she goes into his closet and takes an entire bottle of Tylenol. And then she wakes him up and says, you need to take me to the hospital. They pumped her stomach. I didn't say a word about it to anyone until months later when I confessed to my father who forced me to tell my mother before she saw it on the insurance bill. Over the phone, she calmly told me, you are dead to me. How could you have done that to me? I held the receiver to my ear and held back fat tears as my sweet mates looked over. I thought she understood who I was. I thought she understood everything. So angry was she that we didn't speak much for two years. Todd, however, took me back and we stayed together until I left for University of Michigan and then New York City. So at one point she transfers to University of Michigan. I didn't stop drinking. I couldn't. Alcohol was too much a part of me, a part of college life, a necessary emotional sustenance, as essential as air. I became anxious and scared if I didn't have a drink come evening. It was my regulator, a way to quiet myself quickly. I drank some before class. I drank after class. I drank all weekend long. I drank alone in my dorm room. I drank in the dark room while developing photos. I never drank water, only alcohol, wine or gin or whiskey or vodka. I fell down. I threw up. I stood up. I went to class. So then on this spring break trip, she gets extremely drunk. She goes to a guy's apartment. They're about to hook up and then I think they start hooking up and then all of a sudden she realizes she doesn't want to be there. So she leaves. He tries to get her back to where her friends are, but she wants to sort of get some air and kind of be by herself. She normally doesn't drink around other people. And I think she's embarrassed to go back to them, realizing that she's much drunker than everyone else. So she's walking down the street in a city she's never been to before. She doesn't know anyone. She doesn't know where she is. And two men find her and rape her. 
I lied plenty when I was little, but I'm not a liar now. I'm never accused of anyone of anything false. Never spun a tale with details that aren't real. I wish I could say what happened to me that night was an anomaly, an isolated incident, but it wasn't. I didn't think of them as traumas. I've been raped multiple times because I was too drunk to say the words, please stop. Only that one time was violent. They were total strangers. It was always awful and it was always wrong. And I came out of each event quiet and ashamed. Over the course of my youth, this type of thing happened more than I care to recall or admit. Crawling out of bars, waking up bloated and sick in hotel rooms, not remembering how I got there, not understanding what was taking place at the time. It is painful to write these truths even now. Looking back is the way to move forward, to meet it. There are many plot points I don't remember clearly. So many time frames upon time frames lost. I numbed my body and left it an empty shell for the taking. I still don't know a lot of the details and it's safe to say I never want to. I didn't tell anyone until now. These were the things I drank to forget. I didn't drink for attention. I drank to disappear, to find relief. I drank to numb the pain I was in, the mysterious aches and ever-present pains. And the more I drank, the more I drank out of the need to erase what I had done and who I was when I was drunk. It was a vicious cycle, but it was no matter. The desire to drink as much as I could, as often as I could, stayed with me and did not let go for more than 20 years. So then she moves on to New York and she just says in the summer of 1993, I received a postcard in the mail that she could go to a New York City acting school for college credit. So she goes and she does a summer in New York City and falls in love with acting. And specifically, she has a moment where she's at a bar after class. Matt Dillon, who was huge from The Outsiders, was there and she decided from that moment forward, I had a goal to be the one at the bar who captured others' attention. So after she graduates from college, she moves to New York City. And she decides to pursue an acting. She enrolls in an acting school. She gets a side job. She says, I gave myself one year to find some traction. And she does end up getting an agent who it seems like is her agent to this day, maybe. After 60 auditions, I was offered my first movie role, Cousin Lyndon, a film called in and out $3,000 a week for a six-week shoot. I booked it. She's so excited. She's there with Matt Dillon, and she can't believe that this guy who had been sort of her goal was now her coworker. But yeah. the fallout is she's had money in her pocket and she just started going on a bender. So she's in New York. She's dating a guy. So then she's dating another guy. One night after too many drinks, she admitted, I think I need to stop drinking. He rewarded my honesty by leaving the bar with another girl. I was shook, devastated, crushed. In my acute panic, I rushed to self-destruction. I went back to my studio where he often spent the night. I rummaged through his leather dop kit and took all the pills I could find. I didn't actually want to die. I just wanted the pain to end instantly. I wanted comfort and revenge. I hated myself. This is just a horrible story. Mm -hmm. So she realizes what she's done. She calls her sister and says, what do I do? I need someone to take me to the hospital. I don't know why she can't call her sister who lives in New York City, but her other sister on the phone says, call someone you feel safe around. And so, so she calls this random man who's a photographer that she had the business card of. And the photographer helps her towards the hospital. She says they get to the steps of Bellevue when she falls and passes out. My face at the pavement so hard that I broke a bone. The zygomatic arch just beneath my eye. The photographer picks me up and instead of taking me into the hospital, carried me back to my apartment. I don't remember in my mental state exactly what happened next. I don't know what was said or not said. I don't know what I invited. I just know what transpired. All I know is that I passed out, but when I opened my eyes, he was having sex with me. (sighs) I mean, to have called someone because you needed medical attention, have that person get you to the hospital and decide, no, this is an opportunity for me to take advantage of her is really just horrifying. The next day, her sister calls her because she's unresponsive. She finds her. She's completely out of it because she'd been on so many pills. Her sister takes her to the hospital in the morning and apparently she had taken a lethal dose and somehow survived. 
Yeah, they were able to pump her stomach in time. So she goes to rehab in Michigan. She gets out and goes back to New York. At this point, she's still in touch with her father. He had paid for some of her medical bills and he has a new girlfriend at this time. Selma starts booking more jobs and then she starts getting fired from everything. And it turns out that someone is sending threatening letters. These letters are going to like film producers, to casting directors and Drew Barrymore. The letters continued for a year and a half during which I was fired from every job I booked. I was quietly hysterical when finally I was contacted by a detective who was retained by the talent agency UTA. He said that he'd been hired to protect Drew Barrymore, the famous and adorable actress to whom I was supposedly writing death threats. After weeks spent trailing me, he realized I wasn't the perpetrator and got in touch to let me know. He also had information. He said the letters were being mailed from my father's office building in Detroit. He gave me a description of the sender that just happened to match my father's girlfriend at the time. She then plays this prank where she tells three separate stories about who she's screen testing with to three different people that she suspects. And of course, the story that she told her father is the one that is included in the letter. I mean, her father and his girlfriend have just been horribly sabotaging her entire career. They never have a relationship again. Humiliated, I told my father he was now dead to me. I didn't speak to him for 12 years and our relationship, already challenging, never fully recovered. When I finally met Drew in person at Tracy Ross, the LA clothing store on Sunset, I discovered that she never truly known the whole story, only that it was a father thing, a messed up situation. I told her I was so, so sorry about the letters she'd received. She hugged me and said, don't worry, we all have wild family stuff. And her big embrace smoothed out some of those years old anxieties. It's still a fright to me, the sabotage, the fear, but I count my lucky stars. The famous star is the dearest Drew, who seems to have an unending source of compassion. So before that, she had been up to audition for Charlie's Angels and they were like, oh, she can't even audition because she and Drew have a weird history. So getting that moment with Drew was really important to her. And also, yeah, she is lucky that it was Drew. So then she moves to LA at the behest of her agent. She loves it out there. She's going up for all of these pilots and stuff. She loses out on the role of Joey to Katie Holmes. She was so tall, so pretty. She wore headphones and Birkenstocks. She kept to herself. Of course, I didn't get that part and the rest is history, but I kept getting close. Then she hears about the movie Cruel Intentions and decides I'm going to get the part. No, she's (laughs) sure that she won't get the part, right? She says, I was going to get the part, I decided. That's so funny because then she goes, I didn't actually believe I had any chance of getting the job. So I went in to see her and I was completely relaxed. She says a lot of things. This is the talk of the town. It's the next hot thing. Like everyone who's going to be in this movie is Hollywood's next up. And I guess she goes in and is kind of bitchy to the casting director. He says, how old are you? I was done lying about my age. After fielding this question at so many auditions, I hated it. I stiffened and spat back bradley. How old are you? At that, he sat up and listened. But then she says that she made up kind of a story about how she recently drove over to Canada to get booze, to get beer. So then that made her still seem under 21, which at this point she was probably 25 or 26. The fact that she's like, I was done lying about my age. Anyway, instead of lying about my age directly, I spun a story that was absolute nonsense that implied I was a different age. <laughs> So she just talks about that experience. She has so much fun. Her and Sarah and Michelle Geller are still BFFs. So then she becomes famous, as you guys know. And then right off of the back of that, she gets legally blonde because Chloe Sevigny passed on it. The offers came in, some better than others. I was on a roll. I played the titular character in a TV show, Zoe Bean. Zoe was the cute girl next door. It didn't take off. The label I'd been given was too embedded in who I was. I never figured out how to play the sweet, stable, capable, pretty person. 
I excelled at characters who might be called smug or ridiculous. Eccentric, weird prudes became my bread and butter. My career was on the rise, but I had a hunch I was not going to be a leading lady. I was a supporting player. That was who I knew how to be. It was also the easier label to give. Stars are few and not like me, I felt. If you take one message away from this book, let it be this. Labels are sticky. Still, I landed the cover of Seventeen magazine. Okay, so here's the thing. is She is on a lot of magazine covers, and as a not number one on the call sheet girl... I feel like she became hugely famous. We know who she is and we always forget people. She was the face of Chanel at one point. She was reading this. If you didn't know who Selma Blair was, if you were an alien from the future and you came back and found this book, you would be like, oh, she must have been an extra and legally blonde. Yeah, she really acts like she's a Judy Greer. And I'm kind of like, I don't know, man. I think that you were in the two biggest movies of all time. Like Vivian Kensington was a fucking force in that movie to say that you didn't do anything, to say that you were just like a nobody whose career never really took off. Your career was off. You you were taking it. And here's something that I think is telling that I sent a copy of her 17 magazine cover to her mother in Michigan. She called me as soon as the package arrived. Oh, Selma. She said, you look so unimportant. When are you going to come home and get a real job? Is it the label that you were the best friend or was it the fact that when you were on the cover of a major magazine, your mom was like, you're unimportant, come home. I do think that if she had wanted and she had maybe been in a healthier mindset, she would have been able to become a leading lady. Like she definitely has a very unique specific vibe where a movie could have been built around her. Yeah. And I also though feel like why do you have to be the number one most famous person in the whole planet to be successful? Yeah. If you're not Reese Weatherspoon, you're nobody. To get to where she is, is a hugely impressive feat that very few people achieve. So to say that she didn't make it because she made it to number 10. Like if you're not the ingenue, you're nobody. That's the mindset you've chosen. In many ways, my time in Hollywood felt to me like an extension of my Cranbrook days and that I've taken a liking to almost everyone I've met. Okay, she really has only been in two places and it's Hollywood and Cranbrook. Specifically the Chateau Marmont and Cranbrook. I was genuinely friendly and old enough to be damn grateful. As a supporting player, I didn't feel competitive. I met everyone, it seems. I will have some story, some personal anecdote to share about them. And so then she does go through and does a lot of naming. So then she tells stories about her being weird to almost everybody. She goes to a party with January Jones and runs up and she's very drunk and she just keeps going, you're Betty Draper, you're Betty Draper, you're Betty Draper. And January Jones was like, I'm actually not. And then she's on the cover of Vanity Fair. She talks a lot about the various photo shoots she's done and the photographers she's worked with and the ones who make her feel seen versus the ones who don't. And basically the people who make her feel seen are people who love her exactly the way she looks. And the people who don't are the ones that tell her to relax on a film set. Basically anytime anyone directs her, she's like, they just didn't get me. My look (laughs) didn't translate into the greatness I needed for Hollywood. It didn't align with what it takes to be a leading woman, but it still led me to this incredible life. You literally were the face of Chanel. Like what other heights do you need from your face? That's the thing is I do feel like there is this second place syndrome. You know how there's that study about gold medalists? Silver medalists are pissed that they didn't win gold. And she has like very silver medal syndrome where like she is so upset that she was so famous, but never the famous. I do wonder if that was her face or her look versus her alcoholism. I also, can I say, don't feel like there actually is such thing as the most famous. The page after my look didn't translate into the greatness I needed for Hollywood, she says, I was the first ever actress to be on the cover of Italian Vogue. In those days, Italian Vogue was everything in fashion. When I got the cover, that was my Oscar. It does seem like she maybe was just more interested in the hanging out, doing fashion stuff. She was in the Pirelli calendar. 
She did so many things that are incredibly important in the fashion world. I mean, world. to be in the Pirelli calendar, 12 people per year get that. And she got that. I don't know what heights she thought she needed to reach. I think, I mean, it's just her mom not respecting any of it. Anyway, so then she meets a guy. He's a lawyer. He's handsome. They have a good relationship, but it's just not her guy. Then she meets Jason Schwartzman while she's still engaged to David the lawyer. And living with David the lawyer. And living with David the lawyer. And she is just swept away by Jason Schwartzman. You guys know Jason Schwartzman. He has a look that'll sweep you. She's obsessed with him in Rushmore, which reminded me so much of Cranbrook. So. <laughs> and Jason's character's love for his school reminded me of my own commitment to my school. He was a boy, only 19. I was 25 or so. I thought of him as a child and myself as a much older woman. I was madly in love from the moment I met him. It felt like a homecoming of spirit as if I'd known him forever, destined, a simultaneous heartbreak and joy. Can I say, she then goes on to call it like a little girl's love. To me, and I'm not a psychologist and I'm obviously not her psychologist. I wonder if this has to do with what happened to her in high school. I don't know that she draws a comparison. She just kind of like loves Cranbrook and now she happens to love a teenager who reminds her of her high school. I don't know, man. Listen, I think 19 and 25 is not the age difference I would be comfortable with, but it's definitely not illegal. I do think the way that she constantly points out feeling so much older than him weirds me out. I loved the abandoned impurity of youth that he represented. He was young, but we both were. We got jealous. Things happened. I flirted. Hearts were broken, repaired, broken again. I was hurt by his actions, so they were more age-appropriate than the relationship we were destroying. By the time we were finally ready to be a real couple, we had broken each other apart. So wait, later she says there's an eight year age difference between them. If she was 25, then he would have been 17. What is their actual age difference? Or 1927. He was a boy, only 19. I was 25 or so. You know you weren't. <laughs> That's just not the math. So they officially broke up when she went to do Hellboy, which she filmed in Prague. And she said she was calling him nonstop. But one night he picked up. I called Jason from what must have been the 40th time that week. It always went to voicemail. The dreaded click to beep. But that night he picked up his voice. Both my heart and my gut froze. Oh, finally, I said, I love you. I forgive you. I will never see you again. I will never be with you again. He declared calmly. Do not call me. Do not call me. And then he hung up. I wanted to die. I was airless, flaccid, destroyed. He was resolute. He would save himself from me. So she starts drinking quite heavily again. And I will say... She doesn't really give us any other details of this relationship. But she says, shooting Hellboy 2 several years later and still grieving, I called him one more time. That's when I accepted it was over for good. We spoke. He told me that he was in a great relationship with the woman who would later become his wife, Brady. He was happy. He was so clear in his devotion to her that my heart found grace and was healed. I loved him enough. I realized that I actually felt relief. He forgave me and wished me well. He said, then we said goodbye. Even as my acting career continued, as lovers came and went, as friendships deepened or trickled off and time marched on, I would return to drinking. Before shooting storytelling in New York, I wound up going back to rehab for a second time. I wanted to go. It was my idea. I didn't feel safe with myself and I was worried about my overall health. This is when she goes in for alcohol addiction and depression. The intake nurse reviewed my form and assigned me the eating disorder unit. I told them I don't have an actual eating disorder, which I thought was true. While I knew I wasn't one to nourish myself adequately, I did not feel that I had an eating disorder. Though I did mind my weight, I didn't count calories, I didn't starve myself, and I didn't follow any of the patterns that accompany disorder eating. What does she think the patterns that accompany disorder eating are because she was literally not eating? She then says, ironically, the experience gave me a full-blown eating disorder. I substituted eating disorder for drinking. 
I mean, this is, of course, a problem we've heard time and time again about eating disorder treatment, that it becomes competitive and people like learn a lot of tips. And that's why, for the most part, I think they've stopped doing a lot of group therapy around eating disorders. All signs of her childhood would point to an eating disorder. She worshipped her mom, who definitely had an eating disorder. Then we move on to this weird section about Carrie Fisher, where she talks about how much she loves Carrie Fisher. They met randomly. They became very good friends. She claims that every now and then she'd look up at me and go on these riffs. I'd roar. She was so enthusiastic. Sometimes she'd get dark in her writing. She'd read a passage out loud, and I'd suggest edits. You're right. You have to leave room for laughter, she'd say, nodding. She talks about the last time they saw each other. It was a quick moment at a hotel where they happened to run into each other. She was supposed to go over to Carrie's room, and she was overwhelmed, so she didn't. Then she found out that Carrie died. She says, I didn't go to her funeral. The only person who would have invited me to it was Carrie herself, and she was dead. We never worked together. I wasn't on anyone's list. I was only on Carrie's list. Several pages later, she talks about her wedding. She got married at Carrie Fisher's house. She had friends that would always be like, oh my God, so good to see you. Let's tell Carrie we're together. She was publicly close friends with Carrie Fisher. When you Google Selma Blair, it's in the Wikipedia, she got married at Carrie Fisher's house. Like it's an important detail in like the six paragraphs of her life to the internet. Then we have a section called the Julies, which is where I really was like, okay, this helped me put my finger on what I was feeling about this book that I didn't love. She goes, I collect Julies. Everyone needs a Julie, preferably a handful. A Julie is one of those stable, well-adjusted, loving, and utterly grounded women who comes into your life and makes it better in every way. I owe the major steps of my life to the Julies of the world. And then she goes through all the Julies in her life. The first Julie was actually Sue. After high school, my friend Kelly, Fran, and Chip and I revered her so much that whenever we found a good person, we'd call her a Sue. When I moved to Los Angeles, I met another Sue. Her name was Lisa. And she stayed by my side, sharing my adventures over a glass of wine. Then I met Julie when I first moved to my house. Now whenever I meet a good person, I call her Julie. What the fuck must Sue feel like to get usurped like that? Everyone who knows me calls the good people in their life a Julie. Another piece of advice, find yourself a Julie, those guardian angels who walk among us and then hold on to her. Here's why I have such a problem with this. For somebody who like rails against labels, I feel like to just look at a certain woman who takes care of you and be like, they have it all together. They're perfect. They're golden. They no longer have their own name. They're just this thing I invented. They don't even have a first name anymore. They are nothing besides my guardian angel helper. And that is a Julie. It feels deeply dehumanizing to the people that you are saying that you love the most in the world and who have done the most for you. Also later... She says, when she's going through chemotherapy in Chicago, she's like, all of my Julie's came out. And I was like, bitch, if I got on a fucking plane for you and you wouldn't even use my name, you used the one in our friend group that you liked the best to represent all of us. There's something so bizarre. Especially because she stayed close with Sue. (laughs) And I'm still really hung up. Justice for motherfucking Sue. The fact that she's done this multiple times, she was like, all good people are Sue. And then she met someone better than Sue and was like, we have got to relabel the gang. Sorry, (laughs) Sue, you're Julie. I also think after that section where she finds that her strong, tough sister actually was scared of the same movie that scared her, for her to have this idea that the woman next door is so much better than her, has it fully together, has it completely grounded and is always available to take care of her. Like To me... It doesn't feel like how you would see a whole person. Yeah. It feels like it's very like I have problems and I'm deep and I'm a mess and I need to be taken care of, but you can take care of me because nothing's wrong in your life. Then she gets into her one marriage. When she was 32, she married this guy, Ahmet Zappa, son of Frank Zappa, brother of Moon Unit and Dweezil. They got engaged after eight days. 
Throughout their engagement, it seems pretty clear to every single person who interacts with them, including Selma, that they should not get married. Her mom says, well, I'm not going to throw you a wedding when you're the only going to get divorced. You're like me. You're not meant to be married. Even Karl Lagerfeld made her this dress and she goes, no, I want a big princess dress. And he goes, darling, the ball gown will be for your next wedding. At her rehearsal dinner, of course, at her favorite venue, the Chateau Marmont. That's her second favorite venue. Her first favorite venue would have been Cranbrook. Right, but she likes the Chateau Marmont because it seems like Cranbrook. Her mom appeared at the door of the bungalow, backlit by the evening sun. She looked very, very shaken. Helmut Newton just dropped dead, my mother said, here, right in front of me. Helmut Newton had a heart attack at the Chateau Marmont in the middle of Selma Blair's rehearsal dinner, and it seems like they just kept partying. Well, it seems like the hotel shut down. She's like, all the food was cold because everybody was upset who worked there. The entire guest list was made up of my closest friends from Cranbrook, my sisters, Reese, Troy, Julie, Jamie. My heart wasn't in any of it. We were young and hopeful. I mean, they were not young. (laughs) Can I say? She was like definitely decently into her 30s at this point. Then she goes into, apparently she has a history of biting people. She talks about how she met Sienna Miller one night at the Chateau Marmont and bit her. And luckily Sienna was like, it's okay. And then she tells another story about when Scarlett Johansson took her in a private jet to Vegas for the weekend. She gets a bit Danielle Bernstein there and she goes, there I was. I was wearing a dress and cape by the row. Okay. And she meets Seth MacFarlane and she bites him. And apparently he was like taken aback by it. And so there is that rumor in Hollywood that everybody knows she bit him. Well, he like told the National Enquirer about it. The first and only person to bite me back was Kate Moss. She bit Kate twice. Twice. She bit her once. Kate was like, you goofy bitch. I don't know. Is that British sounding? And then she bit her again. And then Kate punched her in the back and bit her. And then someone goes, oh my God, that hurt. She never realized that it hurt when she bit people. And so then she never bit anybody again. And it's like, what did you think was happening when you were biting people? She then dates this awful toxic guy who... Oh yeah, so she gets divorced after one year. I don't think we even said that. And then she starts dating some awful actor apparently who starts selling things behind her back to the tablets. Really bad relationship. He became vicious. If he disagreed, he would turn on a dime. He's bad in unsensical things. Telling stories that never happened. Saying things that weren't true about me. He was like constantly extorting her. He was squatting in her home when she was making a movie overseas. He was just a horrible person. The first few years I spent regaining my balance after the divorce were an awful, awful time. A funhouse mirror of bad experiences. I felt totally lost. I would stay in my house trying to will myself not to drink. My life was a messy, ugly, unfocused. I was lonely. I was puffy and hot and I was tired. Always, always tired. I couldn't keep it together. In my attempts to self-medicate, my drinking grew heavier as my mind grew less and less focused. So then she goes to Promises Malibu. Famous rehab to the stars. And there she meets our gal, Britney Spears. The first thing she does is tell her to ditch her little blonde wig. And then she does this thing where I guess Britney had... Britney wore wedge sandals in rehab, which is a story I know to be true because I know Britney. (laughs) So I secretly dropped the worn sandals in the trash, hoping it might inspire her to get some real shoes. Instead, she found them in the garbage minutes later and was hurt. Who threw away my flip-flops? She cried. I never told her it was me. I thought I was being helpful. I've since come to feel terrible about this. I mean, you should. You just threw somebody's shoes out. That's like a crazy thing to do. Especially in rehab. I mean, I guess in any situation, throwing someone's shoes away because you think, oh, they must be wearing these shoes because no one's bothered to throw them out. I'll do them a favor. Throw them in the trash where they were meant to be thrown. In rehab, I mean, you don't have, I feel like, a lot of outfit options. To be like, these shoes suck. You should wear different shoes. You're not supposed to be judging people's outfits in rehab, I think. Here was the biggest pop star in the world in the middle of managing her own public and personal crisis, which her family trapped her in, and I'm throwing away her flip-flops. I meant, well, I was just being a girl. 
not yet a woman. You were 36, I think. Also, I don't like that little joke. Afterwards, she starts dating this guy, Jason. They get along well. One day, I was staying at the Standard Hotel in the Meatpacking District, my friend Andre's hotel. Okay, uh, very Danielle Bernstein-y. That has nothing to do with the story. And ran downstairs to greet my boyfriend. We had the most healing and enduring hug that I've ever had in my life. That night, they create the sun. And then we're on part three answers. So she has a son. So she doesn't know she has MS at this point, but apparently pregnancy will put your MS into remission. So her pregnancy was the best she's ever felt. The huge problem was that as soon as she had her son, a lot of the symptoms came rushing back and she really just had a hard time with new motherhood. Her relationship with Jason was not going well. They were kind of in the middle of breaking up, I think, throughout the first year of her son's life. She was feeling terrible, but she had just had a baby, and a lot of the doctors were telling her, these are the symptoms of, you just had a baby. They weren't. Before I had a baby, I'd been able to check out whenever my body betrayed me or made things hard. Back then, I had solitude. I had Tanqueray. I knew how to numb the pain and disappear out of myself. Suddenly, I was hit with a terrible realization. Now that I was a mother, I would never be able to check out again. When Arthur was born, I prayed he'd latch on to nurse right away, and a big part of my job would be done. I'd be a mother. To this I warn, be careful what you wish for. From the moment Arthur arrived, he only wanted to nurse. He was relentless. He nursed as he slept. He wanted everything, sucking the marrow from my bones. He once nursed for 12 hours straight on a flight to Venice. When I nursed, I never felt the oxytocin or sense of calm that some women experience. I could never sleep knowing he was going to wake and need me. When Arthur was a toddler, I hired a woman to help me be a better parent. She asked him what his favorite food was, and he said, boob soup. The woman turned to me and said, you've got a great kid. He's cool. He'll be fine. Then she taught me about boundaries. So up to this point, I had been kind of like, I don't know how I feel about Selma. Boob soup really shoved you off a cliff. <laughs> the way she starts talking about her son and the way she's choosing to raise her son, I lost it. <laughs> Once in an effort to establish boundaries, I went into the bathroom to change. Mama, what are you doing? Arthur said, I just need some privacy, Arthur, some time to myself. He replied without missing a beat. Mama, don't be embarrassed of your itty witty boobies. I think they're cute. I hate that. I know maybe some parents out there are going to think that's fucking adorable. I don't like that at all. I literally hate that conversation to have with a child. I don't love it. She also realizes that she needs to have better eating habits for her and for her son. When I was younger, I didn't eat because I had a nervous stomach or I wanted to disappear or stave off puberty. Now I don't eat because my MS makes it both hard to cut things and easy to choke on them after I do. In some ways, learning to feed myself has been my greatest teacher because I need to see that the way to get the most out of life out of this body I've been given is through real nourishment. I've never had the patience to make something for myself. On some level, I believed I was not worth the effort. Plus, every time I turned on the oven, I thought of Sylvia Plath. I had a whole lifetime of not feeding myself properly. There's no secret here. I write about it because I need to admit it to myself. And she wants Arthur to have the exact opposite experience. It's taken me until writing this book to realize how malnourished I've always been. I don't have a goal weight. I don't get on a scale and I don't limit myself. I don't have an active eating disorder. But clinically, I have anorexia. Because for years and years, I didn't eat. I okay. guess. <laughs> Shortly after I bought our house in Studio City, I planted rows and rows of leafy greens. They grew wild and spicy in the sun-soaked garden. When Arthur was just a year old and exploring the backyard, I would wander over to the greens, romaine, charred butter, and arugula, and snap off what the earth had made. Exhausted from nursing through the night, I would whimper as I brought a jagged piece of arugula to my mouth. So she is showing him that you should just eat lettuce. Lettuce. <laughs> That's her. She's like, he needs to be well-nourished. I'll go get some arugula. And she talks about how they would eat with their hands and she would make him a plate of lettuce with oil and vinegar on the side and they would dip the lettuce into the dressing and eat it. And when the dad would take him for the weekends, and this is the crazy part because she acts like she couldn't stop nursing, but clearly 
He was going to the dad's on the weekends and the dad was like, hey, he won't use a fork or knife. And she was like, I know I've time to eat it with his hands because we're like giving our body what it needs. And it's like, your body definitely needs more than just arugula. I can't imagine giving a two-year-old arugula for dinner. Like you get arugula and breast milk. He took a whole folded leaf and stuffed it into his perfect little mouth. Some oil smeared on his chin. He went in for another. His bitten nails just giving the flavored oil when he dipped. He was eating. He was happy. This small boy was so different from the fearful, sensitive girl I was, trying to impress my family, trying to understand the rules, hiding under the bed in shame. He was the complete opposite of me. So it turns out he has a disorder that his heart essentially stops beating because his body can't regulate adrenaline. And so when he doesn't get what he wants and he's about to have a tantrum, he will die. (laughs) So whenever she tries to establish a boundary and say, I can't nurse you right now, he dies. (laughs) Which isn't funny. That's a medical thing, but it does also feel like the brattiest can alive to be like, well, we can't not give him what he wants. He'll kill himself. (laughs) We don't think it's funny. She starts to reconnect with her father. And when she's supposed to go visit him, he dies. Yeah. She wants to bring Arthur to him for the first time. And he dies a few days before they go. She and Arthur's dad, Jason, all go on a trip together. She gets fucked up on this trip. She says it's the second time she ever drank in front of her son. And she on the flight back takes an Ambien and is drinking and has like an absolute meltdown on the plane. It's I guess front page news. Everyone's talking about it. She like has to write a letter for Vanity Fair apologizing. And that's when she realizes she has to get better and she's hit a rock bottom. So she decides to get sober and I think she does commit to her sobriety. But she says, I wish I could see what I would have been like without alcohol. I would truly love to know. My mom was a big drinker, but she wasn't a drunk. Molly was functioning. Molly was responsible. She was always, always on top of it. She was just on top of everything. This is her mother she's talking about. Her mom who wouldn't let her pee. She never fell apart the way I did. She kept her shit together. But is it any wonder? All my life, I saw a stunning, capable woman who was able to smoke and drink. I idolized her in all ways. Of course, I was going to copy that. And then she talks about how grateful she is that Arthur has no real memories of her being drunk. He remembers once getting in a fight with me in Mexico, one of the two times I drank in front of him over the game of shoots and ladders. Did I throw a shoots and ladders piece at my kid? Was I that pathetic? Thankfully, he doesn't even recall a drink in my hand. I mean, that part where she's like, I mean, yeah, my mom was drunk all the time, but she's perfect and she doesn't need to change. So of course I would try to be her, but I just couldn't do it because I'm not as good as her. These are the things that I think should have been worked out first before she wrote the memoir. This is why I think there's like a huge hole in this memoir for me personally. I agree with that. To look at your alcoholic mother and be like, well, she had no problems. (laughs) Wouldn't that have been nice? She just drank with ease. Ironically, I think it helps her relationship with Jason. He has a lot of trust in her afterwards. And he will still allow her to have custody. They had been in a horrible custody battle. And despite what he could have used against her, I think he stands by her and says, I do trust you still with my son. And that vote of confidence means a lot to her. And he basically is like, I don't believe that this is the only time you've been drinking. I see you fall down. I don't know what to do. And she's like, I swear to God, I was sober. I don't know why I just fall. And that's when she finally commits herself to her health, goes to a doctor who's able to diagnose her with MS. She goes to several doctors. Finally, she goes to whose brother is it? Oh, Elizabeth Berkeley. Remember when we didn't, when you didn't know she And was? again, I thought, because she knew her from Cranberry. And I go, how could Elizabeth Berkeley have gone to school in Michigan? She's British. How could Elizabeth Berkeley have gone to school in Michigan? She went to Bayside. <laughs> yeah, so she hooks her up with her brother, who is a spinal neurologist. Yeah, so she goes to this doctor. She finally gets an MRI, and they find that she has several active lesions in her brain. She says that getting a label is deeply relieving. And I think that this is true for a lot of people. This is a situation where labels can be quite helpful. I mean, right now we live in a 
society that unfortunately doesn't believe people, especially women when they have chronic illnesses. And so I think to have that confirmation, like you are sick and here's what we need to do was really relieving to her. She said, I thought back to the time when my mother cried with relief upon hearing that I was an alcoholic and suddenly understood why she felt comforted. There's great power in words in an answer in a diagnosis to make sense of the plot that you could hardly keep up with any longer. She talks about finding out that Joan Didion also had MS and because she had always really idolized Joan Didion as a writer, that was very comforting to her. Didion said, there's a point where you go with what you've got or you, or you don't go. I made a decision. I would get up and go. The biggest realization was that I wasn't a victim. I was done with self-sabotage. Now it was time to use every resource I knew. So she's become a real advocate for MS ever since. And she had a really warm welcome, I think, from the media. She was really afraid of going public with it. She was told specifically not to because it could hurt her career. And she still needed to make money and support herself and her son. She mentions money a few times throughout this book in a way where I'm not sure she ever really made a lot of it. And she does a lot of talking about how difficult it is and how it's different every day. I understand why people with MS spend a lot of time in their homes. Self-preservation. These small things add up. In my bedroom, on the floor that I'm used to, I can dance. But if I step off the wrong curb, I'm liable to injure myself. On some level, MS is an adventure. It isn't the one I wanted, but it's already there. So I do my best to embrace it. In terms of going public with her diagnosis, she says... I can help erase the stigma attached to MS, bring increased awareness to those living with disabilities and to help people who are coping with chronic illness or even just a painful experience of being human to realize they're not alone. And I do feel like she really is doing that and I really admire that goal. And she does acknowledge a lot how lucky she is that not everyone is in the position where if they feel bad, they can skip work. Not everybody is in the position that if there's a mess in their house, someone can come clean it. She really acknowledges how much easier it is for her than so many people who don't have the privilege she has. So then she undergoes a very experimental treatment that Jennifer Grey tells her about. A few weeks later, through the power of Instagram, the actress Jennifer Grey helped get this baby out of a corner. She messaged me about a friend whose own brother had undergone a successful stem cell treatment at Northwestern and urged me to consider it. So she goes out there and it's really brutal. You have to go through chemo for a few months and then you have to do three weeks of total isolation and then they give you the treatment and then it takes two or three months to recuperate. And the treatment did have a really positive effect on her. So much so that she was able to, in October, hop on a plane and get to Cranbrook for the reunion. And she definitely feels it back. She says she has really bad short-term memory. She struggles a lot. She gets through a lot of her struggles. But as the book winds down, she just talks about feeling a lot of hope and pushing herself to keep living, specifically for Arthur. Her mother passes away in the meantime, and that's obviously very painful for her. But then she gets into what her life is like with Arthur. And again, I was like, what are you talking about? She talks about raising a bad husband. She says she's very aware that the son she's raising is going to be a terrible husband. He loves to sneak up on her and just shoot her with Nerf guns, even when she's in horrible pain and she'll be flopping on the floor and in agony and he's just pelting her with nerf bullets <laughs> and he won't stop but she just has to laugh and love him because you know he doesn't care that she's fragile my favorite time is when arthur is sleeping and i can listen to him breathing when he's asleep i can pretend he is nice to me all the time it's kind of how i feel about bug <laughs> i'm well aware that i'm creating a horrible husband and i've made the person i hope to never marry for starters i love carrying my son <laughs> 
When Arthur was a toddler, he would yell, I can't walk. You can walk, I would say, but if you want me to carry you, I will. And he would reply that, yes, he wanted me to carry him. Mom, I want you to carry me to the bathroom, he yells from his room. Because he is nine, many would argue that he is far too old to be carried, but I still carry him to the bathroom at night, practically dropping him along the way. But it benefits us both. When she was in the middle of a breakup with Jason, Arthur's father, she called Jason's mother, stood in the backyard in tears and said, this is your fault. You raised your son to get everything he's ever wanted. He's done this sort of thing for you to a million years, but I can't do the same to him because you enabled this man child. That's how I felt. She said that she was sad this was happening and I was on the brink of real self-harm, terrified Arthur would be taken from me. I've since forgiven her because I realize how hard it is to be the mom of a boy. I realize how hard it is to be a mother in general. And I know that one day I might get a phone call similar to the one I gave Jason's mother. I won't be surprised. I am a husband ruiner, guilty as charged. I mean, excuse me, I'm sorry. To be keenly aware that you are raising a bad man, don't do that. Just don't then. (laughs) What about this story? They're watching a movie with her for the first time. She says, what do you think? Do I look the same? Yeah, on opposite day, he yelled, pointing at the screen, because that girl is pretty and you look nothing like her. He roared with laughter. Before I had the chance to respond, he was already out of the room, grabbing his Nerf gun to shoot me with. (laughs) He's not a nice boy. She talks about being a seeker, someone who's always looked for answers, which once again, going back to the very beginning of this book, when we said that she's the kind of person who seems like she hasn't really had that many conversations with other people. I do think many people are looking for answers. I don't think it's unique to enter this world and think, I don't need to know anything else. I don't want to know my future. I don't want to actually know much at all. When you are a seeker, what you're really looking for is someone who speaks your language. Like a core element of being is trying to find someone who understands you. I think that's what almost everyone in the world is looking for. You never give up hope of finding that true connection. It's like hunting for a Birkin bag at an estate sale. There's always that glimmer of possibility. In a world full of fakes, maybe you'll find a real person who can give you the answer you've been after. That was a tough line. It was funny. By the end of the book, she really got... I said it twice already, but... The Danielle Bernstein was jumping out of her a little bit and dropping all these labels and names and my friend, the hotelier, my, I was here, I was wearing the row. Something that frustrated me about this book is when she gets her MS diagnosis, I understand and I really respect and don't want to like criticize her journey because it's obviously very hard to have a chronic illness. And I think what she's done has been very brave and I'm sure she's helped a lot of people, but she immediately goes, oh, that's why I was drinking. I was drinking away the pain. And I do think for me, the problem with this book is she does kind of add up all of the things that have made her who she is. And then she sort of washes it away at the end. And the way that she gives, I think the MS a lot of power at the beginning of her life when there were so many other factors that I think played a huge role that she's too afraid to admit. I think to this day, she isn't ready to honestly look at her mom, which is fine. I think a lot of people, most people on earth wouldn't really want to look at that relationship and call it what a professional might call it. But to write a book where you're looking for these answers and literally the third section of this book is called Answers. And I think she thinks she comes to a conclusion. And to me, it felt very hollow and dishonest. And that was why I think I had such a hard time with this book. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that especially this recently after her mom's passing, it's going to be really hard to dive into it that way, especially because she doesn't have a relationship where it really has occurred to her while her mom was alive that their relationship was not good. Yeah. Or like the patterns her mom set up for her. I think what Jeanette McCarty did was really incredible. Very few people have been able to honestly look at their relationships with a parent. I don't think Selma Blair will ever be at that point. 
I wish she would keep her writing to things that she could talk honestly about because to me, this book felt dishonest. That's the thing is I think that there are very few things she's really embraced in a way that she's willing to talk about openly and honestly and her MS is one of them. And I think that that's an area that we could use her voice enormously. And I think the way that she kind of bullet points through so many things and has like kind of a wistful conclusion about them that doesn't really go anywhere. She just kind of has like a sweeping statement that's almost like romantic in the way of like, these are the things we go through when we're young. And it's like, it's not, it's not what everyone goes through. And some people have, and some people can relate, but this is hard and you can talk about it or don't, but to just brush it away like that kind of devalues a lot of these experiences. Yeah. Just thinking specifically about what her dad did to her, to have your own father absolutely sabotage your career that alone would fuck somebody up for life and it kind of gets neatly packaged up and never reviewed again. I don't know. So I would be honestly interested to hear what other people have to say about this book. Me too. I doubled down going back and doing the outline for this. I feel like we were both kind of afraid to say it. I was texting you being like, I'm not sure. I yeah, like- I didn't know how I felt. And then <laughs> I think, you know, we have to kind of go back through the book and study and analyze. So I think the way I'm delivering it is more powerful than it necessarily than it made me feel while reading. I definitely felt while reading a bit off and then I had to go back and study why. This is not like other books where I'll be like, this is a bad book. If you loved it, I would be open and interested in hearing what you loved. Me too. But I definitely had a weird taste in my mouth. Anyway, you guys, on the Patreon this week, we are finally getting into Shania Twain stuff. We will be getting into all the other pop culture stuff. If we have- Don't forget to come see us. Oh yeah, live, baby. And we love you. We love you. Yeah. Who do we love the most? Our five-star reviewers, of course. Thank you so much to... McGowlin spelled a little bit like a ghost gowlin and listen baby I hope you haunt me forever thank you blah blah three eight four seven nine three eight seven shout out to the eight four seven <laughs> nestled in there my favorite area code Thank you, NBCVBNNBB. Thank you, BB. Thanks to Mindful Monkey. Keep meditating, baby, and eating those bananas. Thank you to Kevin DC Walsh. Can't wait to see you in DC, I hope. Thanks to Not You 66677. Not who, because my favorite is you. Thank you to KDA.com. Oh, my favorite website from the dot-com boom. Thank you to DJs. Dude, I'm always telling DJs to fucking relax. Thank you to W. McCuddy Sark. I appreciate your healthy dose of W. McCuddy Snark. Thanks to Gorilla Toot. I'd love to meet you. Probably not smell you, though. Thanks to Zoe Kitty Cat Cat, the only cat I would consider adopting. Thank you, SLH Bear, the cutest little cubby bear in town. Thank you to SA Grace SM. This review was written with so much grace. Thank you to Eureta Morales. I'll take more of that, please. Thank you to Ashley Red 22. Oh my God, and Ashley in her red era. I am excited for you. Thank you to Elia Dahlstrom. I hope you weather the strum. Thank you to my reviewing podcast nickname. Oh, a car just backfired. And that will be your reviewing podcast nickname. Are you guys hearing this? Thank you to Lauren Lolo Marsh. 
keep riding in them lolos, girl. Thank you to ABC Easy One Two Three. I mean, Michael Jackson isn't canceled just for you. Thank you to Kareenison. If this review is a sin, I don't want to know what's right. Thank you to It's Me and Myself and I. And that's all you need, baby. Thanks to Gugiana4418929. I hope it's that really fresh, great goo that they have on Instagram. Thanks to a member of Nexus. Oh my God, if this is a cry for help, blink twice. Frogs in my sandwich. Thank you so much. And if you ordered a frog sandwich, man, I hope you're enjoying it. And if not, I guess I would tell somebody. Mama, 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 mad. Don't be mad. Be happy. Sweet Euro tea. That sounds like a very cool t-shirt. And I appreciate your review. Low 92488. Drop it low, girl. Kira Danny. There's no better Kira than a Danny. Thanks you, Lexi. Thanks to Lexi Olives. I'll take three and a martini, please. Thank you, Tampa4356. I hope we see you someday in Tampa. Savannah Smallco, stay small, baby. Supa Dupa, the best, the most Supa Dupa. Lauren loves you. Ashley and Claire love you back. Funky Boo, stay funky. Coco PRG, thank you for that little splash of chocolate. Oh, wait, I think that's all. Okay, that's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you the most, and I'll see you next week.